Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. We have three episodes left of the first season of Enemies of the People, and they all revolve around the themes of disinformation, QAnon, conspiracy theories, and the extreme right. We're kicking off our discussion today with our guest, Mike Rothschild. Mike is an expert on disinformation and author of The Storm is Upon Us, how QAnon became a movement, a cult, and conspiracy theory of everything. The Storm is Upon Us is also our November Frenemies Book Club. Mike and I talked about the origins of QAnon, how it's become part of the Republican Party establishment in the United States, and how it is very much a global movement playing a key role in far-right and fascist groups all over the world. And just as a small note, while you can hear Mike very well in this interview, for some reason my side of the recording is not very good. You can still hear and understand everything, but it's not the quality that we're used to on my side. And for that, I apologize. I tried the best I could to fix it. So hopefully you can still enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Mike. My name is Mike Rothschild, and I am the author of The Storm is Upon Us, how QAnon became a movement, cult, and conspiracy theory of everything. So when I first came across Q, as in people were talking about Q online, I thought it was, to be honest, some Star Trek fanfic. Because I thought it was, <laughs> I honestly, and I was so disappointed, disappointed to find out it was some kind of extremist right-wing conspiracy theory rather than some you know, fanfic about the Q existing. <laughs> I would so have preferred that. <laughs> I think it would have been better for everyone if it was about the yes. Q. <laughs> yes. So for for um, our listeners who are not familiar with what Q is, other than, of course, Star Trek, what is Q? So QAnon is a cult-like conspiracy theory that holds that a military intelligence team has been working with President Trump leaking secret and cryptic clues to an upcoming purge of the deep state called the storm that will unseal hundreds of thousands of indictments, arrest the leaders of the Democratic Party, big business, the Hollywood elite, the globalist banking cabal, try them under military tribunal rules and execute them and thereby usher in a new utopia of peace and prosperity. Now, that's really what QAnon was from up until its beginnings, which was about four years ago, right around now, until Joe Biden took office. Once Biden took office, obviously, Donald Trump could no longer execute the purge of his enemies. He was not in a position to do so anymore. So the QAnon conspiracy movement really changed from one that prophesied Trump bringing his enemies to justice to Trump returning to office. So you've had this ever endless series of conspiracy theories about the 2020 election being stolen, about massive fraud being committed, and President Trump either secretly still being the president or being about to be restored to office through some sort of magical, unconstitutional means. So that's really what QAnon is now. It's, it's a much more mainstream movement devoted to propagating the stolen election conspiracy theory, along with any number of other adjacent conspiracy theories, such as 
the COVID-19 lockdowns being a hoax, masks being slave muzzles, the vaccine being worse than actually getting COVID, the suppression of different COVID cures, the idea of child trafficking, the idea that there is a deep state that is still controlling things and that Joe Biden is a sort of decrepit husk who's only you know barely aware of where he is. All of these different conspiracy theories have really merged together and become much more mainstream and much less lurid. So when you're talking about QAnon, you're almost not even talking about something distinct anymore. What you're really talking about is just the mainstreaming of conservative conspiracy theories. And is that what you mean what in your book you talk about the, the QAnon ecosystem? That it's not just you know this one individual, this one um, isolated forum on some dark corner of the internet. It has developed. Right. There is an entire uh, ecosystem of QAnon, of QAnon promoters, of QAnon writers, of merchandise, of podcasts, of live streams. Very little of what is actually talked about in the Q movement really comes from Q. And really less and less because there hasn't been a Q drop now since December. It's been, I think, about 10 months since there's been a Q drop. So there's no new content from Q but you you don't really need new scripture if you have a scripture already. You know, it's not like there's still people writing new books of the Bible. You, you have the Bible. What you do now is you debate it, you take it apart, you find your own messages and meanings in it. And that's really where we're at with Q. The, the idea that there's this military intelligence insider, that's not really a part of it anymore. You know, the people still believe those things, but it's so much more than that and it's so much bigger than that. So when Q started, it was um, this online presence pretending to be some kind of military insider with secret information that they released in these Q drops. What do you think is, can you trace, and you do that in your book, what is the, the process that moved Q and on from this kind of isolated internet thing to the mainstreaming of Q that we have today of Q and on? So very early on, the first month or so of Q, it really was a very niche thing. It was very, it was getting popular on 4chan, although even those first few QAnon posts on 4chan were, were sort of ridiculed as just, you know, more, more LARPing, more pretending. But the story was, at least I think, very skillfully told. And it really explored something that a lot of people in that world really wanted to see happen, which was Hillary Clinton and her cronies being brought to justice. This is something that's really powered the Republican Party for a long time. So it's not shocking to me that something where the central tenet of it was Hillary Clinton's going to get what's coming to her took off and, and, and sort of gained in popularity as more and more people got pulled into this story. What you started to have really very early on was a small ecosystem of content creators who started making videos and started making memes, making podcasts, and tried to figure out what was going on here, what this was all about. Now, one of the things that the, that the early Q poster did that was very smart was tied the events that they were talking about to a conspiracy theory that was already going on, this idea that there was going to be an Antifa uprising on November 4th, uh, 2017, that you know Antifa people were going to be going like house to house and like beating up Trump supporters. I mean, it was totally ridiculous. But this was going on in a lot of the sort of 4chan, Reddit corners of the MAGA world. And the Q poster tied those two things together. So you had people talking about this Antifa apocalypse, and they started to tie it in with Q, and Q was starting to take off. And you had these early content promoters who found a very lucrative niche in making these videos. So you had people 
who would really maybe get a thousand or 2000 views on their videos. Suddenly we're getting six figures in their viewership talking about this cute thing. Hey, is this real? What's going on here? Let's talk about this. Very community oriented, very like, Hey, we're just trying to figure it out. We don't have all the answers in a way that, that she would get very good at and exploiting very quickly. And it's so fascinating to me because the conspiracy theories are absolutely absurd. Like I remember some of them that I've come across is there was a while when they, there was, gosh, there was, um, I think it was a prediction. It was a cue drop that there was going to be a video release of Hillary Clinton killing a girl and skinning her face and then wearing yes, her face. Yes, the, the frazzled rep video. Exactly. And and all these theories, the James Comey five jihad, you know, right. at that school in the U.S. And they are so absurd, but they they tend to really grip people. With conspiracy theories, it's very paradoxical. The more bizarre it is, the more people believe it. And the more meaningless detail that gets added onto it, the more people understand it. So when you have something that's that's true, it's usually very run-of-the-mill and, and sort of vague and, and like it's not really that fun to talk about. But when you have something like a vast conspiracy and a si- secret silent war between good and evil being played out in everything from you know military operations to typos and Trump tweets, people get really pulled into that. It it becomes a like a Tom Clancy book that you are a character in. And, it, and it's a form of alternate reality gaming, but it's it to me it's it's not that. And I'll, you know, a lot of people talk about Q as like an alternate reality game or a live action role play. I don't look at it as that because things like that have solutions. They're they're, they're puzzles that have solutions. They're riddles that have answers. With Q, there are no answers. Anything means whatever you want it to mean. So. If you're going to compare Q to a game or a, or a sport or something like that, the thing I compare it to is a slot machine where you keep feeding it your time and your attention and increasing your money. And it gives you back flashing lights and bells and buzzers and, and things to keep you interested. And of course, you could sit there doing that forever. A game eventually ends and there's a winner and everybody goes home. But with Q, it can keep going you know, in, for infinity. And it, it really is right now the QAnon content on social media is presented not as we're telling you how it is, but we're going to figure it out together. And I think that's what makes it so compelling. You know, so many classic conspiracy theories are just sort of a long ramble about terrible things that are happening and powerful people doing them. And there's nothing you can do about it. But with something like QAnon, it's very much, you're part of it. You're, you're fighting the battle against the dark forces. You get to do something about it. You, you're, you're not being told what's going on. You're figuring it out together. And that's why so much of this media, especially the TikTok stuff, is like, hey, isn't it weird? Or, hey, does that make sense to you? Let's figure this out together. Why don't they want us asking questions? You know, very, very sort of repetitive thought terminating phrases that are disguised as like things to make you think. But but really, there's nothing there to think about. You're just being told that something doesn't make sense, even if it makes perfect sense, even if there's nothing there to figure out. It becomes a puzzle that you are solving as a community. Do you think that's that's one of the why um, Q can be so Seductive to people is the sense of community, the sense of belonging, of working together to fix 
some kind of issue to discover some kind of secret. Because so much of this is, is with the example that comes to mind that you talk about in your book is the James Comey five jihad. Mm-hmm. And that was just a tweet that James Comey did about five jobs that he had, but somebody right. decoded it to mean something else, right? right? The five jihads thing was just a, a Twitter trend. And it wasn't, there was no puzzle to decode there. It was never meant to be a puzzle. Somebody looked at it and assigned it meaning that they wanted to have. There was not a a solution to it. They just took a picture and turned it into a puzzle. It wasn't a puzzle to begin with. And that's really what makes something like QAnon so compelling is you have an entire universe in front of you of things that can be, as they they call it in QAnon, baked. You know, things that can be decoded for hidden meanings. And if there's no hidden meaning, you just make it up. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be right. The community is desperate for more puzzles to solve, for more breads to be baked, as they say. So the the content is endless. The slot machine never stops. There's always something going on in the news, especially now, to be decoded, to be turned into a puzzle. So it's really a conspiracy theory that is that is self-sustaining based on nothing more than the desire to see things as more complicated than they really are. And it's self-sustaining without the main character, right? Because as you right. said, there hasn't been a Q drop in about 10 months. Right. It is it is self-sustaining without a leader. And and that's why, you know, one of the ways it really differs from a traditional cult in that there is not that charismatic figurehead whose you know word is is bond and you know they are the ones who decide. In Q, everyone's the leader. And anybody can set the direction for the wherever the movement is going. So, so many of the major concepts in Q, things like adrenochrome, things like, you know, even just going back a few months ago, the container ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal that was supposedly full of trafficked children and its containers, that, that never came from a Q drop. That came from people in the community taking something very anodyne and turning it into something very sinister. That is That can be repeated an infinite number of times. I always associate the save the children type of conspiracies with QAnon. To what extent are they actually related to Q drops or something that has emerged from the QAnon um, conspiracy ecosystem, as you say? Q never tweeted save the children. Q never talked about adrenochrome. You know, Q talked about some of that stuff in sort of abstract terms, but a lot of that, in fact, almost all of it came from Q believers, came from people who were in the community looking for things to decode. And so you had a movement in, you know, last summer, summer of 2020, that was very much in flux. You know, Q iconography was finally starting to be banned on social media. And they realized that they could continue their movement. They just had to talk about it in a different way. So Q and QAnon and some of the hashtags, like where we go, one we go all, that stuff got discarded. But in favor, it became much more mainstream and it co-opted something in saving children that nobody could reasonably be against. I mean, there are very few people in this world who support child trafficking. And, you know, the people who do probably should be arrested because they're probably traffickers. But this really didn't have anything to do with the extant organizations that were doing the work of, you know, helping missing children. And it was all based on sort of fraudulent statistics about you know, hundreds of thousands of children disappearing every year. Well, the vast majority of them were found within hours and were either ran away or were taken by relatives. You know, the idea of this sort of vast, overlapping, organized child snatching ring is it's not real. 
but it's a very easy thing to scare people that is real, especially when you've got a pandemic going on and everybody's inside and nobody knows what the hell is going on. That is a petri dish for conspiracy theories and for people's fears to become manifest in real life. When it comes to the, 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 say, the children, help me put the conspiracies into some kind of a timeline, as it were. The Pizzagate conspiracy, was that before or after QAnon? That's before. So Pizzagate really took off in the in the weeks leading up to the 2016 election. And again, based on nothing, I mean, based on things that did not have a hidden meaning, that had a hidden meaning attached to them. It was these leaked John Podesta emails that that had these sort of inside little catchphrases that didn't really mean anything, just the sort of you know, shorthand that people use when they're talking to people that they know that was combined with, you know, pedophilia stuff that was going around 4chan that, you know, was never real, but people wanted it to be real because again, it's that puzzle solving. It's that feeling like you're part of a community that's doing something important. All that stuff, all that stuff got merged together and it was turned on Hillary Clinton because again, she was the figure that all these people had in common as hating. So it took off, you know, in, in those weeks leading up to 2016, it, it got very popular very quickly, and then kind of faded away after Trump won the election. And then it became toxic when that guy showed up at Comet Ping Pong with an AR-15 shooting into the floor looking for children to say, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's all fun and games until somebody shows up with a gun and commits domestic terrorism. Then nobody wants anything to do with it. So... Pizzagate became one of the component parts of QAnon, but by no means is QAnon kind of the continuation of Pizzagate. I think they're different enough so that you look at Pizzagate as being one part of it, but not the only part of it. So domestic terrorism in the U.S. What do you think was behind the leap, as it were, from QAnon from being this, you know, isolated conspiracy thing on the internet, if it ever was an isolated conspiracy thing on the internet, moving on to actually being acted on and being behind a lot of white nationalist events in the U.S., like the uh, conspiracy, like the conspiracy, <laughs> funny as some of the times, like the um, insurgency on January 6th. So it was a it was a progression. So what happened with QAnon is in the first couple of months, it started to take off on YouTube and on Reddit. And then two of the early evangelists, these guys, Paul Ferber and Coleman Rogers, went on InfoWars in December 2017, as QAnon was really starting to become popular. But it was right around that time when it was jumping from 4chan to 8chan, and it was still very much a kind of niche, swampy internet thing. These guys go on InfoWars, which, you know, is the most popular conspiracy theory media around at the time. And they they talk about it as a military operation and that they need the help of people who have experience in that world to help them you know, save the world and help Donald Trump defeat the deep state. And, and it just, it really took off from there. That was around the time you started to see some of the big promoters come up. You started to see the big Q-drop aggregator sites because these people realized that if people went in large numbers to somewhere like 8chan, they're going to be repelled by it. It's, it's, it's a truly repellent place. But if you take the part of, of QAnon that's really important at that point, which is the drops, you take that and you put it into a much safer place, like something like QMAP or on Twitter or on Reddit, it's much safer. People aren't going to be stumbling on that horrible racism and the horrible anti-Semitism, the pornography that's there. And it's a place where people can get really into this conspiracy theory movement 
but they don't have to be exposed to the really dark underbelly. So it, it really starts to take off among Trump supporters who've been looking for some way to help Trump fight the bad guys that doesn't necessarily involve a monetary donation. And so that's where it really takes off, where it's people looking for community, people looking for a group of people who believe the same things that they do, uh, have the same enemies that they do, blame the same opposing forces for the problems that they're dealing with. And Q wraps that all up and makes it into a cool, fun puzzle that you can solve together. And it's really not shocking that this would catch on with people who are already prone to conspiracy theories. To what extent was the QAnon ecosystem behind the January insurrection when it comes to um, organizing it, motivating it, promoting it, etc.? They're very much intertwined. So what happened in 2020 is the Q drops were definitely about the pandemic. You know, there's a lot of stuff about like hydroxychloroquine and all that other crap. But much more, I think, it was about setting people up for the fact that Trump was going to lose the election. You know, Trump's loss in 2020 was not a surprise. He was not polling well. He was very unpopular. Obviously, we've got the pandemic going. The economy's doing terribly. All of these things are are traditionally factors that make a president lose their re-election bid. But in Trump world, Trump doesn't lose. Trump's infallible. He's not capable of losing. If he loses, it's either because he was cheated or because he is only pretending to lose so that he can win big even later. So his victory later can be even bigger and more awesome. So all of the Q drops are leading up to Trump having the election stolen from him. Joe Biden is decrepit. He's corrupt. He He's senile. He barely knows where he is. He's propped up by Ukrainian money and Chinese money and all these other things. So he cannot win the election. Joe Biden can't win unless the deep state steals it for him. Well, what happens? Biden wins the election. Therefore, the deep state stole it for him. So all of that stuff was being relentlessly hammered by Q, by the big Q promoters, but also by Trump, by Trump, by Trump's inner circle. This idea that, you know, there was going to be this massive voter fraud, that the mail-in ballots were all going to be fake, that there were going to be, you know, massive late night voter dumps. I mean, all that stuff was all being done to soften the blow of Trump losing. And I I don't know that anybody planned for, you know, insurgents to be running around in the Capitol on January 6th. I think you can tell from the footage that a lot of the people who got into the Capitol were really surprised that they made it in. You know, they they they're all, you know, charged up and crazy and breaking in and then they're inside and they're like, what do we do now? I guess we just take a selfie and, you know, steal some stationery. And then we get arrested. But everything that was leading up to that was this this conspiracy theory that the election was going to be stolen. So it's not a surprise that in the aftermath of the election, people believe what they're told by people they trust. They trusted Trump. They trusted Q. They trusted the big Q promoters. They trusted the people in Trump world. You know, your Rudy Giuliani, you know, Donald Jr., all these people who are telling you over and over, we can't lose, we can't lose, we can't lose. The only way we lose is if they cheat. And they lost. So it has to be cheating. So, you know, the 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 capital insurrection to me was sort of a once-in-a-lifetime confluence of events driven certainly by QAnon, by militia movements, by the fact that these people really delusionally believed that Trump would somehow pull victory out from defeat that Mike Pence could just decide, I'm not going to accept these electoral votes. 
I'm going to make Trump the president again. You know, never mind that the vice president cannot do that. And never mind that if the vice president could do that, presumably Al Gore would have done that in 2000 when his loss very much was contested. This is the reality these people wanted to live in, and they still live in it. So we can see really the, the progression and the how intertwined QAnon is with the extreme right in the U.S. and Oath Keepers, etc. What is behind, in your opinion, the uh, QAnization, as it was, of the Republican Party? Because this is not just an extreme movement anymore. It is part of the Republican Party. Oh, it's totally part of the Republican Party. What's happened in certainly over the you know the last year of the Trump administration and then with the election afterwards is that the the mainstream Republican Party tried to walk this line of you know they don't have anything to do with you at all. They don't know what that is. They don't agree with that. But they can't they can't they can't knock down the people who believe it. They can't refute it because then they're going to anger their their base of voters who really do believe it. There are a lot of people who think Q is an actual military intelligence leaker, who think Trump really is a five-dimensional genius who, you know, is always strong. And when he appears weak, it's because he's even stronger. There are a lot of people who actually believe that. And if you are a mainstream Republican and you are a senator in a swing state, if you are a state legislature, a state legislator in a state that you know Trump only won by maybe fifteen thousand votes, you can't alienate anybody. You can't piss off anyone because not only do you risk Trump losing, you risk you getting a primary challenge, and that means you have to spend more money, more time. You're risking losing your awesome job in politics. So none of these people were willing to take the risk of saying QAnon is garbage. We don't want this in our party. This is not the kind of thing that we should be encouraging. These people are crazy. They need, they, they, you know, they, they need interventions. They don't need to be coddled. None of them would do that. And of course, it exploded on them because now you've got Republican senators who have to say things that they know are not true. These people aren't stupid. They know that Trump lost the election. But when somebody asks them, hey, Senator so-and-so, do you believe that Joe Biden actually won the election? They have to say, well, you know, the the votes were certified and, you know, there are some irregularities and that's what we should be talking about. You know, this sort of gobbledygook word salad that absolves them of having to say, yes, Biden's the real president. Please ask me a different question because they can't take that risk. What is the end game for them, though? Because they can't continue like this forever. You know, the end game is is hopefully it goes away, but it's not. It's not going away. And it's getting more mainstream and it's getting more popular. And the idea that the election was stolen from Trump is is only gaining strength. So now they're they're at a point where they can't go back from it. They've they've gone too far. They they have to keep going with this idea that, you know, there are some irregularities and we should have forensic audits and blah, 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 blah. The, The end game is just trying to survive at this point, trying to survive the madness that's taken over their party. And I think some of them really are absolutely Trump acolytes. You know, you see it with some of these guys like Jim Jordan and uh, Paul Gosar and some of these Republicans who who really do, if if they're faking it, they're faking it really well. But they really do look like they worship Trump as some sort of golden idol. But I think most of the Republican Party doesn't. I think there, there really is not a lot of support for 
throwing out the structure of free elections in America and making Trump president for life. I don't think most people in the Republican Party want that, but they have to act like that's something they'd be okay with because there are a lot of people who want. So the end game for them is just trying to put their heads down, quietly win the next election, and then get some kind of cushy board of directors gig afterwards that pays them enough money that they can, you know, go to sleep at night. Hello, frenemies. I have fantastic news for you. Thanks to you, we have not only leapfrogged Nigel Farage in the Apple Podcast Politics Charts, but also Steve Bannon's podcast, landing at number 28, which is our highest position ever on the chart. I am honestly so overwhelmed. I may have had a little cry about it. So thank you, all of you. So let's maintain our position above Faraj and his ill by continuing to listen, share, subscribe, rate, and follow our show. Also, thank you to all of you who have become monthly supporters of our show since last episode and everyone who donated at coffee. You have all been entered on the Storm is Upon Us giveaway. I've extended the giveaway actually for one more week, so I will announce the winner in next week's episode. Your support really means the world to me. It is the reason why we have a season two in the works right now. If you'd like to enter the giveaway, remember you can just buy us a coffee or send us a picture of your review of the show. I cannot wait to discuss Mike's book and QAnon with all of you. Now, back to the show. I work on white nationalism and white supremacy in the UK, and and you see QAnon posts here within the forums, and it's not isolated in the, from the, in the U.S. anymore, it's become this transnational movement in a way, or at least it's becoming this transnational movement. So, yeah, so that is the other thing that I was going to ask you, is to what extent it, is, is QAnon still an isolated American issue, and to what extent it's now bleeding into the global transnational far right? It's really very much an international issue. You know, early on, Q was very America-centric, and it was dealing with the sort of the minutia of the Supreme Court and the Senate and all that stuff. But other countries embraced the elements of QAnon that fit the best with their own political and cultural landscape. So the stuff about American politics, and really even a lot of the Trump worship, really doesn't appeal to, you know, the far right in the UK or in France, but the idea of sort of anti-authority, anti-expertise, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine mandates, anti-progressivism, that stuff is very appealing to the far right everywhere. So it's really been embraced by you know, the Reichsberger movement in Germany, by the far right anti-lockdown marchers in the UK. It's been embraced by the Yellow Vest movement in France, which is really both far left and far right. And that's a very complicated movement, but it's very extreme. It's been embraced in Japan, where they, they there's a big QAnon movement that really loves Michael Flynn in Japan. The New Age elements of it have really been embraced in places like Brazil. So QAnon is big enough and diffuse enough that it offers something to everybody as long as it's extreme and unevidenced. Not to mention that it's deeply anti-Semitic, and right. that is extremely popular with the far right everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, that's the that's what really what unites all of it is, is this this exploitation of these classic tropes of 
you know, George Soros and the Rothschilds running central banking around the world and the blood libel and protocols of the elders of Zion. I mean, this is stuff that gets recycled generation after generation. You know, a pamphlet in the 1900s will embrace it. A pamphlet in the 1940s will embrace it. You know, a book like Behold a Pale Horse in the 90s, which becomes a huge hit in the conspiracy world, embraces it. And now QAnon embraces it. It's this. It's a very, very slight variation on the same thing. When it comes to the demographics of people who support QAnon or participate in the QAnon ecosystem, is there some kind of like lead demographic? Because in my head, like with the far right here in the UK, it's mostly white male, but young people as well as older, but mostly older people. But as talking with Abby Richards, for example, and um, another guest in the podcast, Ashton Kingdom, there is a lot of young people who are now very much co-opted into QAnon and other conspiracy theories, especially those that find out about it through TikTok and gaming forums, for example. Yeah, the, for me in the U.S., the the demographics of QAnon are very hard to pin down. You know, it's 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 certainly overwhelmingly conservative, but it's also popular in very progressive, very pro-Bernie Sanders circles. It tends to skew white. It tends to skew middle class or upper middle class. Education-wise, yes, you know, fairly large number of QAnon believers have at least some kind of advanced education. You know, this is not the the domain of sort of uneducated hillbillies the way we we think of it as the U.S. The demographic for QAnon more than anything else is already believing in conspiracy theories. So if you are already a 9-11 truther, if you are already somebody who thinks that Barack Obama was born in Kenya and has a fake birth certificate, if you're somebody who thinks that there's a vast deep state uh, trying to destroy Donald Trump, you know, if you're a flat earther, if you're an anti-vaxxer, if you're an anti-5G, any number of things, that is, that's the lead into QAnon. It's, it's not sort of who you voted for, it's what you believe. And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the people who are who identify as QAnon believers already are in the conspiracy theory world, and this is just the next step for them. Then there's no wonder, really, that Donald Trump became like this golden idol because he became he came to political prominence over conspiracy theory, the birther conspiracy theory in the U.S. So you can really see why it, Trump has been embraced by the community. Yeah, Donald Trump had no real political leanings. I mean, he'd had a very brief run for president in 2000, which of course everyone's pretended never happened. But what what drove him to political prominence were, were conspiracy theories, and particularly the idea that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. He, Whether he believes that personally, I certainly have no idea. But he was able to get a lot of other people who do believe it on his side as the guy who talks about the things that the rest of us just think. And that really defined the Trump era for a long time was he's the one who will say it. He's got the courage to say it. He's got the money to back it up. He doesn't need Washington money. He doesn't need super PACs. He's rich enough that he can do anything he wants. And I want to be like that. And that really was the driving force of, of his explosion and popularity. It was nothing to do with his policies or anything like that. He hated the right people. And he believed in the same ridiculous conspiracy theories that other people believed it and they had the courage to actually talk about them publicly. When it comes again, speaking with this idea of the demographics, I, you spoke, you were a guest in one of my favorite podcasts of all time, um, The Maintenance Phase, mm, and yeah. you were talking about uh, the overlap, the intermingling of QAnon and wellness. Yeah. And that for me was quite an eye opener because I hadn't thought about it 
that way before. I could see the connections between QAnon and, and vaccine and anti-vaxxers, but not the wellness community. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? And what was it about QAnon that attracted that kind of community? So QAnon at its core is a movement that's really about questioning what you're told. You know, do do your own research is the, you know, the battle cry of, of all the conspiracy theories that are like QAnon. And the the wellness and health freedom worlds are very much the same thing. It's, you know, your truth, your journey, you decide what's best for you. You know, you can, you know, you don't need to listen to your doctor. You go online and you find that supplement that they won't tell you about because they don't make money off it. It's that 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 classic distrust of authority, the distrust of expertise, the creating the world as the place you want it to be, your truth, your your life, your experience. So in that sense, QAnon is very similar to the wellness world in that the only things that matter are the things that are real for you. You know, so maybe you're not talking about the you know satanic pedophilia stuff, but increasingly a lot of these people did become very concerned about that with the pandemic. You had concern over trafficking, over experimental medication, you know, the, certainly the vaccine, you know, Bill Gates, 5G internet, all that stuff, all that stuff got wrapped together. And it was a, a perfect funnel for QAnon because QAnon was asking the same questions. It was the same thing of, you know, we're the only cult that teaches you to think for yourself. Well, if you're being taught to think for yourself, you're probably in a cult already. You just don't really know it. So those two things fit together really well in terms of distrusting what other people are telling you simply because they they present themselves as experts. You make the rules for yourself. So really in this day and age, someone who supports QAnon could be, you know, the stereotypical white guy hiding in a basement on the computer and the yoga mom on Instagram. Exactly. Exactly. It is that that yoga mommy, that you know, mommy blogger, the, you know, hey, I'm gonna tell you about this pillow that I love that's organic and hypoallergenic and blah 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 and you all my essential oils. And isn't it funny how eight hundred thousand kids go missing every year? And why are there, you know, fifty thousand fake votes in Arizona and you know, what did Trump mean when he used, you know, when he misspelled the word stopped in a tweet? You know, hey, I'm just asking questions. I just want to know the truth. Why why don't they want me to know about this? It's that exact same thing. So it's really not surprising that it's gone global because the wellness community is global. The anti-vaccine movement is global. It's not just in the U.S. Sure. Health freedom and, and pseudoscience and quack cures, that stuff is universal. And so is the idea that we're being lied to, that the experts don't know what they're talking about, that they're experimenting on us. They don't they don't know anything we decide for ourselves. That's just that's human nature. That's always going to appeal to people. And the big promoters behind QAnon are very, very good at exploiting that. When we come to, to QAnon, we've talked about how, you know, it's a leaderless movement now and it's more about an ecosystem rather than an individual who was originally behind QAnon? I mean, I know that we don't know for sure, but we have very good ideas of who those people are and what role, if any, do they play in the current movement? 
we still don't know who made those first drops. We still don't really know who made the drops on HN going forward. It's entirely possible that there are two different people, that they might be multiple groups of people, that the people who started it don't know who ended it, that the people who ended it don't know who started it. It's That's still very mysterious. The, the original Q poster on 4chan, who got going you know, about four years ago around this time, they didn't leave any way to identify themselves. There's no digital signature. There's no marker there. A lot of different people have claimed that they did it or they know who did it or they were there when they did it, that they were part of a group that started. But the thing is, is that none of them can get past that initial problem of there's there's nothing in those drops that's identifiable. So if one of them is lying, why aren't all of them lying? None of them really have proof. So it's really it's a, it's really the unanswerable question of who started this. And of course, as we get further and further away from the drops being meaningful, it's it's a question that matters less and less. My my own work and the work of other people who, who I respect in this community have kind of coalesced around one of the people involved early on, Paul Ferber, the South African web designer who went on InfoWars in December who was really a very early evangelist for, is still an evangelist for those early Q drops, thinks that it was hijacked afterwards. And of course, it was his personal board on 8chan where Q started posting. So if you can get past that, it might be a whole bunch of other people, but I still don't really get past that. I've never really had a compelling reason to do that. And in terms of who it was at the end, I still think it was Ron Watkins. To me, there's nobody else that really makes sense as Bez doing it. You know, we know that he was able to get onto 8kun when it came back up. He was the first account that started posting on 8kun. And of course, Ron had no answer for how that was possible. Ron's tweets and his now his Telegram posts, they read exactly like Q drops. You know, the, the, the cadence is exactly the same. And of course, Ron has no reason to be Q anymore. He was able to leave that behind once the election happened, because he rebranded himself as this election fraud expert, and he was able to do that using his own name. And, and you know, within weeks, he's tweeting about Dominion and voter fraud in, in Arizona, and he's getting retweeted by Donald Trump. That would never have happened as Q, but it's very easy to happen as Ron Watkins. So once you're getting retweeted by the president and you're being talked about on the national news, you're not going to go back to your anonymous little character. You don't need that anymore. So for me, there's no need for Q to be posting anymore as long as Ron Watkins is doing his thing. Now, if Q were still making you know dozens or hundreds of drops every day, that would be a little bit different. But there hasn't been one in a long time. And there I don't know that there ever will be another one because there's no need for them. When it comes to national security and the national security apparatus and fighting, you know, combating QAnon, is it what are the reasons why it is so difficult to deal with it or the authorities are so bad at dealing with it is because they still see these kinds of cults and movements and, and right-wing extremism and ever as having a figurehead. And because QAnon doesn't have a figurehead, they can't then remove it and end the group. It's, it's nebulous, it's diaphanous, and that makes it much more difficult to deal with. Right. It's not like a Ponzi scheme where if you arrest the guy running the Ponzi scheme, the Ponzi scheme is probably done. Q is, is diffuse enough that it is now just a belief system. And what what is different from Q from some of these other previous incarnations is that Q wasn't doing anything illegal. You know, it is not against the law to post cryptic crap on HN. It's just not. And and it shouldn't be. 
that should be protected speech. Now, you can get into what did Q incite violence, did Q incite the Capitol riot? And I don't think Q really did. There's really nothing in there that you can go and look at as that is concrete, clear instructions to do a specific thing. That's not what was going on with the Q drops. So, and when people talking talk about, oh, you know, when are we going to arrest Ron Watkins? I mean, look, you can talk about what he did from a civil standpoint, certainly with the election fraud stuff. And I think he's facing some pretty significant civil liability there. But from a, a legal standpoint, I, I don't know that there was any wrongdoing there. Just a whole lot of conspiracy mongering and exploitation of people, which unfortunately is is protected by the law. You know, there's just not a whole lot you can do about that from a governmental standpoint. So how do you combat Q and QAnon in the ecosystem that's created that does have very real consequences politically? You have to do it at a very granular level. You you can't really do it at scale. You know, the idea of the with the White House, you know, having a disinformation combating office, I think that that's a terrible idea because the 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 people about whom so much of this disinformation revolves around are the government. They can't they can't solve this problem. People think they are the problem. The problem has to be solved by us, by us keeping track of what we're doing on social media, what our friends and loved ones are doing. What are they sharing? What are they talking about? Are they starting to go down these rabbit holes? And if they are starting to get to a point where they're talking a lot about anti-vax stuff or trafficking stuff or, hey, you know, Joe Biden maybe isn't the real president, you step in and you talk to them about, hey, do you know where that comes from? What, what about that do you think is real? Now, a lot of them are just going to be in that world because they want to be. It's more comforting. It's more reassuring to think that there's a grand conspiracy behind all of this stuff. So you, you have to monitor it and you have to take action when it's warranted. If you have somebody who's really into this, you know, and they're not hurting themselves, they're not hurting anybody else. It's just kind of a thing they won't shut up about. You maybe don't need to do anything and there maybe isn't anything you can do. Now, if they are hurting themselves, if they're hurting somebody else, if they're talking about doing something illegal, then I think you have to step in. And you step in by letting them know that you are a safe person to talk to, that you have their back, you're not going to try to ridicule them, you're not going to try to debunk their way out of this, you're not going to debate them. None of that works. That's all just a huge waste of time. But you're there for them. If they have questions, you are willing to talk to them about it. But you also make it clear that you are not going to change. They're not going to red pill you. They're not going to wake you up to, to whatever they're doing. You know, maybe maybe you th- maybe they think you're the crazy one, but they get to think that. You have to you have to deal with this stuff in a way that is safe for you and, and manageable for you. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming on the show. I think it's so important to talk about this in the UK as well, because I think us British people have this tendency to be quite high and mighty about America. Mm. You know, like, look at the Americans and their absurdity. <laughs> look at those stupid yanks. <laughs> look at the stupid yanks and all that they get up to and all the crazy things they believe in. But which I think backs the fact that this is a global issue that has yeah. very much been become rooted in the UK as well. So it's important for us to realize that that is an issue here as much as it is in the UK. So thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about QAnon. Well, thanks for having me.
That was Mike Rothschild. You can find him on Twitter at RothschildMD. His book, The Storm is Upon Us, is available now, and it is the November book of our Frenemies Book Club. Remember, you still have one more week to enter the giveaway for a free copy of the book. Just head over to Coffee and support the show or send us a screenshot of your review. And if you become a monthly frenemy supporter at Coffee, you will get the exclusive link to join us on our live November book club. Our Coffee link is in the episode description. Next week, we will be talking with Abby Richardson. Abby is a TikTok disinformation researcher. Abby and I will talk a lot about the role of conspiracy theories and QAnon in the radicalization process and how that process is being accelerated by TikTok. If you are enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. We reached our highest ever position on the UK Apple Politics podcast charts this week. So let's keep the momentum going by sharing the show, subscribing, following and rating and reviewing us. I am not lying when I say that I'm very overwhelmed and really grateful to all of your support. It is because of you, the listeners, that a second season of Enemies of the People is not only possible, but already in production. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week for more Enemies of the People.